0: Some time ago, I I read about a wealthy but kind of a a cheap man that went Christmas shopping for his wife. Uh, He found himself at at the ladies' perfume desk area of one of the finer department stores, and a clerk saw him there and asked what he wanted. And he said, well, I'm just looking for something to give my wife for Christmas. And so she looked for a moment and produced a bottle of perfume. And the guy said, how much does it cost? And she said, well, it's $75. Uh, and he said, that's too much. I don't, I don't want to spend that much on it. And so she said, okay. And she went back and she produced a, a little bit of a smaller bottle and brought it to him. How much is that? And the response was, well, it's $50. And, and the guy said, it's, it's still too much. I don't want to spend that much. And so she went back and a little bit of time but she found a kind of a really small bottle of the same perfume and and the guy asked how much is this and she responded was well, $25 and at this point the guy was really kind of uh, frustrated with her you know I, I'm, I want something cheap I mean, really cheap and so she said okay and she disappeared for a moment came back with something in her hand She said to the guy, would you like to see something that's really, really cheap? And he said, yes. And she handed him a mirror. This is um, Christmas, this season of the year is not the time of year for stinginess. And I'm not talking here about buying gifts. I'm talking about just everything that this is the time of year when there's just a certain wholeheartedness that I think we have toward everything, toward serving other people, toward giving towards celebrating, toward expressing joy. This is the time of year. The angels who announced the birth of Jesus Christ to some shepherds on the night of his birth, who were out there just with their flocks, they had like a party in heaven. It's like the heavens erupted with, with great joy. It was a heavenly celebration that was taking place there, a joyous occasion. They really let loose, if I could put it that way. But a question I'd like to raise this morning is this, why? Why were the angels so excited? I'm convinced, by the way, they were genuinely, genuinely excited. But why? What about this? Why did they do what they did? They left their earthly and heavenly responsibilities to make this announcement to some shepherds in their field. Why'd they do it? Now, part of the reason, of course, is God said to, and you tend to do what God says to do. So I think from God's perspective, the birth of Christ could not come and go without some kind of a celebration. But I think there's more to it. See, these angels were not ones that you would think would benefit from the birth of this child much, would they? I mean, it was a human baby that was being born, so why were they genuinely excited about it? Why did they let loose about it? And when I get toward the end this morning, I want to give an answer to that question. But we've been talking the last few weeks about Advent. The word Advent means coming or arrival. And we have been talking about both the first and the second comings of Jesus. And so he first came as an infant to become the Savior of the world. We're expecting he's coming back. We're waiting for him with great expectation that he's going to come back and rule one day. And so there are really two Advents that we're looking forward to, and as we've been focusing on the Advents, we've also been focusing on particular subjects related to Advent, like the subject of hope, which I talked about two weeks ago, or last week I talked about faith. But today I want to talk about joy, and I want to look at the story of these angels who appeared to the shepherds who thought that this night was probably going to be like any other night that they had experienced when suddenly there was again this just, this unbridled joy that was unleashed upon them, this exciting message about the Savior being born. Now Luke begins the chapter that we're going to be looking at here today by describing how Joseph and Mary made their way to Bethlehem. At the time, they were living in Nazareth, and they went to Bethlehem because they were required to, to register. It was, it was like a census. You know, every 10 years in our country, we do a census. And they were required by Caesar Augustus to go to the hometown where they were from and to register in that place, that, that location. And so, that's why they happened to be there at the time. And, um, and the purpose behind the registration most likely was taxes which is often the case. But let's begin reading the story in Luke 2, beginning in verse 1, where we read, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with his wife, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them at the lodging place." Let me talk about this for just a little bit. Most of you, I think, are aware of the fact that Jesus was most likely born in a cave and not a barn, you know, as the Christmas cards depict, this nice barn scene. It was most likely a cave. Uh, Dr. Jameson writes about this, the ancient tradition that our Lord was born in a grotto or cave is quite consistent with the country being rocky. He was making the point that this traditional, this historical idea that is out there, that Jesus was actually born in a cave, fits. It just makes sense when you go to the region. And if you were here last year, I showed you a picture of a cave that I saw when I was in Israel four years ago. This was a cave that was still being used by shepherds. In fact, on the floor of the cave, there was wool from the sheep. Sheep. And this is more likely the scene that that this baby was born into. And when you see that, and when you consider exactly who this was, it does raise some questions. I mean, it's just remarkable that the Son of God, God the Son, the creator of the world, should be born under such circumstances. I mean, I think what we would have expected would be a palace. The idea that our Savior would be placed in a feeding trough for animals, which, by the way, the trough was probably made of stone, not wood. From a human perspective, this just doesn't make sense, hardly. But here we get our first hint about who this was. This particular king, and and remember, he was born king. He didn't become a king. He was born king of the Jews. This particular king was someone whose primary concern was not his own comfort. This was someone whose birth resembled his death, you know? He was willing to lay down his life. It shows the humility, the approachableness of Jesus Christ, his willingness to suffer on our behalf. And his coming in this way, of course, speaks volumes about the kind of people that would approach Jesus. Because Jesus, in this situation, is not one that the high and mighty and the proud and ones like that would go and try to find. The people that find Jesus would be ones who are humble, who are willing to go to a stable, And it shows how open this invitation of the Savior was to all of us here. And by the way, the town of Bethlehem at the time in which Jesus was born was a dot of a town. Some think there could have been as few as 100 people living there. Some think it was maybe 300 or as many as 400. That's just how many there probably were. So it was very, very tiny, which is why, by the way, the innkeeper didn't have room. And really, I don't know if innkeeper is even the right word to describe this person, but we have this idea that this this innkeeper, you know, denied a place for Jesus. Well, it wasn't really that way. I just don't think that there was room anywhere. There just wasn't a place to go. The size of the town, though, is very significant because of a prophecy that was made 750 years earlier. Micah, the prophet, foretold that this Savior would be born in Bethlehem, this daughter of a town. And so in Micah 5, 2, he said, Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's called Ephrathah, by the way, because there were two Bethlehems, and so it's distinguishing which one is which. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from Eternity. I, I, I'm always amazed when I read that because it's describing someone who is going to be born in the future who always existed. And you get the hint here of who this is, that this is the Son of God and God the Son, the one who existed prior to his, his birth. But to predict that he would be born in that place so tiny, you know, it would be kind of like saying that some amazing, the world's greatest leader was born in Morgantown, except Morgantown's too big. Maybe Kingwood. No, Kingwood is too big, too. Can we find a little town that has like 100 people in it in West Virginia? There might be one like that, and then to predict 750 years ahead of time that the the ruler, the king, the creator would be born in that place. On top of it, of course, um, they didn't even live in... Bethlehem at the time. This was the miracle of God to even get them to Bethlehem. And the timing looked inappropriate, but it was God's perfect timing. The senses drew them to the place where this child would be born. Now, this birth would have gone unnoticed, except for what happened next. The story, this humble story, takes a surprising turn. And so we continue reading in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. That literally should be translated, they feared a great fear. I mean, these guys were scared to death. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Now many of you know that the shepherds of Jesus' day were kind of looked down upon. They were a lower working-class. R. H. Stein puts it this way, shepherds were considered untrustworthy, and their work made them ceremonially unclean. Thus, the most obvious implication is that the gospel first came to the social outcasts of Jesus' day. And again, you see how this lines up with this very ministry, the people that hung around Jesus. You see that the invitation is extended to the outcasts. So many Important people missed out on the birth of this child, but not these shepherds. And they were looked down upon because their very work made them unclean according to the Old Testament law. If you were connected with a carcass, you know, a dead animal, which is what their job, their profession was all about, it it meant that they couldn't go to the temple and they couldn't do some other things. They were looked down upon. Dr. Warren Wearsby writes about this. In that day, shepherds were considered to be the lowest rung of the social ladder. Now, initially, um, only one angel appeared and, and made an announcement. Again, it's found in verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. And so there's just one angel that starts the scene, and then all of a sudden, a multitude of angels appear. In verse 13, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Now, let me pause for a moment and focus on two words here in this announcement. The first word is the word multitude, and the second is the word host. The word multitude refers to a very, very large number. I think most of us have an image of that night of some shepherds and a few angels up there. But this was, there were lots of angels. Dr. Linsky says this, about thousands of angels appeared and filled the expanse of the sky. Thousands of them. That's a little different scene than I tend to have in my mind about them. He goes on to say, by the way, it's possible there were 12 legions of angels He's talking about some words that Jesus uttered later on when he was arrested. Jesus said, don't you know I can call 12 legions? 12 legions is 120,000. And then you say, wow, is it possible that there were that many? And many scholars believe, too, that the angels kind of came in waves. You know, just here's some more and here's some more. And that the message that they gave was more like a responsive reading. I'm just trying to paint a picture of what this celebration would look like, but some of you have been in churches before that had, you know, this thing called a responsive reading where, where somebody reads a line or two and then the congregation responds and they go back and forth. Sometimes songs are written this way where the guys sing this part and then the girls sing this part and it goes back and forth. And many scholars believe that's what was happening here, that the first part of the message was glory to God in the highest And the other group responded, peace on earth to people he favors. Glory to God, peace on earth. And that both of these things are very connected. They complement one another. That God's glory, God's heart, the thing that will bring him glory for eternity is going to be peace on earth when things are fixed. And here's where we begin to get a hint of maybe why these angels were so exciting. Excited about the birth of Jesus. Now, this idea, this responsive reading is captured in the in the Christmas carol that we're going to sing at the end this morning. Angels We Have Heard On High. Lily Pierce writes about this song. The word Gloria is sung in is sung in Angels We Have Heard on High. It's melismatic, which is a $2 word. I'd call it a $20 word, but. A two-dollar word for holding one syllable and hitting several notes. You know, glow how we sing the song. I'm not going to sing it for you. This effect enhances the idea of what a host of celestial beings singing might sound like, and it adds to the sense of merriment in the carol. Now, I'm going to talk in a little bit about the background of this particular uh, carol that we're going to sing here. and But I'd like, to, before I do, to read the rest of the story, and then I want to answer my initial question about what I think these angels were excited about. But let's continue reading here what happened at the end of the story, beginning in verse 15 of Luke 2. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, notice by the way that they returned to heaven, they didn't just disappear. They It is evidence of the fact that that's where they came from. They came from God, had been sent by God. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a feeding trough. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told. The shepherds passed on this story. They were so filled with joy, you know, because you can imagine if this happened to any one of us, you you just couldn't keep silent about it. You know, we were out in our fields and suddenly an angel appeared and then this host, and this was the message. And, the, and suddenly these guys are filled with the same joy that these angels had. It was quite a celebration. But when we look at the message that the angels delivered, I think we learn why the angels were so excited about the message, not just people. The first part of the message, which many feel was perhaps, a where it's probably delivered by Gabriel, although we don't know that for sure, but he was involved in the other situation, so it's possible. But let's read again, Luke 2, 10 and 11, where we read, but the angel said to them, to the shepherds, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy. So It's the message that's something to be so excited about, so joyful about. It'll be for all the people, and then here's the message. Today, a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. Today, a Savior, a Deliverer, Who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. That's the first part of the message. And then the rest of the angels show up. In verse 13, suddenly there was a multitude, thousands, you know, this heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, and here's the message, glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. By the way, I've mentioned earlier that I wanted to mention the word host, you know, multitude and also host. The word host is a word that refers to an army. There's a, just a complete agreement about that. This, is, this was God's army. The irony of it is that it's God's army preaching peace. But what was their message? Glory to God in the highest heaven And peace on earth to people he favors now I believe that it was these two ideas that made these angels so ecstatic first of all that the Savior the Messiah had come into the world the one that was going to save had been born and he's called the Lord it adds that phrase who was the Lord the Greek word that's used for Lord there is used elsewhere most of the time in the New Testament as The New Testament name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. He's called Lord. And so these angels are witnessing the Creator entering His creation. That's what they're watching here take place. And I think they were excited about that. But then the second part of the message kind of ties it together. And it's, again, the reason why I think that they are so excited because they're preaching peace on earth, there's finally going to be peace because of this savior because of this deliverer now why is this again so exciting in the in the bible i can only think of one occasion where there was an angelic celebration that took place uh, apart from the book of revelation there's some celebration that takes place in the book of revelation but you know, as I was reflecting on it, I could think of nowhere else in the Bible where you find this this such an excited celebration that took place in the heavens, except the birth of Christ and one other place. Any of you know when the celebration took place and which book of the Bible it's recorded in? You can think about it for just a second when did the angels celebrate? And which book of the Bible would it be found in? Well, the celebration took place at creation, when God originally created everything. That's when the first celebration took place. And we read about it in the book of Job. If you remember, Job, of course, was, went through some trials and tribulations. But when you get to the end of the book of Job, where Job was complaining to God, God in, you know, began to talk to Job and and begin to challenge Job and even to confront some pride in Job's heart. He said, you know, Job, were you there when I created everything? You know, do you know how the world was built? And, and, And what foundation is it resting on that it's just there, the earth and the world? Of course, Job didn't know the answer to the question. But we read about it in Job 38, 6 and 7, where God asks Job, what supports its foundations? Referring to the earth. Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Talks about the morning stars singing. Likely Venus and Mercury is what people think. But it's some of the stars that are brightest in the early morning. If, if you go out in the morning, I go out and get my... Newspapers sometimes and it's still dark out, but you see some of these stars, these morning bright stars. But then when it talks here about the sons of God rejoicing, every commentary I consulted about it, agreed that we're talking about angels here. That they shouted for joy, that there was a celebration, there was this this party going on, this sense of awe. Now I want you to imagine for a moment if you were there with the angels when God created everything and what it would have been like. I mean, sometimes we're, like, struck with the awe of something in God's creation, right? You know, when, when I um, was in um, Iceland, I saw the Borealis Aurora. We were there, and it was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. It wasn't even what I expected. It was just remarkable. It was, it was awe-inspiring. Some of you have been at the Grand, Grand Canyon. I haven't been there. But it's so amazing, it almost takes your breath away and and these angels were witnessing God creating all of this all the the planets and everything I mean we don't know all that they were able to see but they were there when the earth was created They saw how God, you know, produced life on the planet, the plants and everything, and then God created the animals, and then God created Adam and Eve, and all of it. They looked at it, and they celebrated, and this was the glory of God. All be revealed through creation, and they shouted for joy. They were just filled up with joy at what God had done. Lord God, you're so amazing. I mean, I'm just, you, you know what it's like when the joy wells up in your heart, and that's what I think happened. Only maybe a hundred times, a thousand times greater than the awe that we experience in our short glimpse of things as they watched all this it was a celebration but it did not last long if you know the story because not long after and we don't know how long but not long after God created Adam and Eve one from the angels own number rebelled against God taking what many feel was a third of the angels with him and Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God, and it ruined everything. Everything was ruined. God had told Adam and Eve this is what was going to happen. God gave Adam and Eve everything in, in the garden, and all of the world was there. Everything was theirs except one thing. God said, just don't eat from this tree in the middle of the garden, because in the day that you eat of it, death's going to come upon all everything. And now, they disobeyed God. Paradise became a place of thorns and thistles, and rust and hatred and pain and sorrow, sickness, death, and spiders. And on and on, all the things in this world—the evidence is all around us. Everything was cursed. I don't understand why that it just had to be that way, but that was it death came to all of it and so the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that to this day creation itself is groaning he talks about how all of creation is under the bondage of corruption everything's you know you leave it out in the weather it's gonna die everything you know the second law thermodynamics that's, that's the world we live in and in Romans eight twenty-two. Paul wrote, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. It's like it's just this pain, longing for, wanting to give birth to something new, something better, something that would fix all this. In addition, the relationship that people had with their creator was was blocked or severed. Sin had come between people and God. And so we find the evidence of this when Adam and Eve, of course, are hiding in shame in the Garden of Eden from God. God, of course, knew where they were. God could have been and would have been justified, and He said, "Well, you blew it. That's it. Live with it." He could have allowed creation just to go its way, or He could have started over. He could have said, "Well, I mean, this didn't work." He could have started over. But none of this caught God by surprise. None of it did. When God created people, he knew this was going to happen. He knew it before he created them. He knew that if he gave Adam and Eve the ability to choose for or against him, to love him or not love him, to obey him or not obey him, to trust him or not trust him, if he gave them the ability to choose, he knew what was going to happen. And he, that's what he wanted, though. He wanted to create people that could reciprocate love. He didn't, he didn't want to force it on us. He, he wanted us to love, us, love him freely. This is why I think there was the tree in the garden. You know, why, why put in a, one tree that, that they're not allowed to eat from? Why? Do you love me? Do you tr- trust me? Will you do what I ask you to do? Because I want a relationship with you. And they, they said, no. And sin came into the world. And God knew this was going to happen, but he knew something else. He knew the solution. Before the world was created, Jesus was chosen, the Son of God, and God the Son was chosen to be the Savior of the world. Paul writes, before the foundation of the I Peter mean, writes, before the foundation of the world, he was chosen to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He was chosen to fix everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden. He was chosen to be the one to, to save us, to deliver us from all of this. And this is how he was going to do it. First, he was going to succeed where Adam and Eve failed in living a sinless life. You see, all of us are caught in Adam's tale of sinfulness because he was our father, all of ours. But Jesus came to be, in a sense, the second Adam, the perfect man. So he succeeded where Adam and Eve failed living a sinless life. Second, he took upon himself the penalty and the cost of our rebellion. Because the wages of sin is death. He said, I will die for the sins of the world. He was the perfect sacrifice, willing to do it, to pay the price for us, to die in our place and for our sin. And third, he overcame the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin by defeating both death and the devil. He rose again from the dead. And by doing this, suddenly it opened the door for new and good things to begin happening. And so we read in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. This is what I think that the angels were celebrating. And by the way, Christmas Eve service, that's what I want to talk about is peace. The idea of peace is so much bigger than just peace between two people that can't get along. It's, It's so much more than all of that. But the angels saw in the birth of this child the beginning of the end of all that was bad. They, they saw that the Savior had come into the world and he was going to fix it all. And I think they re, that's what they were rejoicing about. I think when Adam and Eve sinned, by the way, if angels are capable of doing so, I think they wept. It was ruined. I mean, can you imagine if you saw, it was so beautiful, and then it's just, it's ruined. It's ruined. their hearts would sink but then Jesus came to to fix it all and Jesus Christ coming into this world and dying and rising again from the dead means that he would defeat death once and for all it means that one day there will be a new heaven one day there'll be a new earth it means one day we'll get a new body if we put our faith in Jesus Christ one day Satan will be put away locked away forever It's all gonna be new, it's all gonna be fresh, a new creation. The starting point for some of us here though today is to become part of it by putting your trust in Christ. And this is why Paul said if if anyone is in Jesus, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. When you put your trust in Christ, this begins the process. Things aren't fixed yet, it's not all completely done, but it's, it's heading that direction. But your life can be changed In a moment, because you're born anew, Jesus said, when you put your trust in Christ. God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will receive eternal life, and we're accepted into God's family. We become children of God. It's a brand-new start for us become a new creation and part of all of God's plan for all of eternity. So if you've never done that, put your trust in Christ. I encourage you to do so. And most do it again through a simple prayer, acknowledging their sinfulness, acknowledging their need for a savior, I need a savior, and then turning to him. The one who died was buried and raised again by faith. I receive you as my savior. put my trust in you, I put my confidence in you. If you're already a believer here today, I I see that we have the potential to be so much, so like the angels, enthusiastic, joyful about all that has happened. We really can celebrate because we can see what's happening. We see where it's going. It's not great yet. In fact, things are going to get worse before they get better. We know that. But the end of the story is not there yet. If Jesus defeated death, he could defeat everything. And, and so we just understand things differently. And it should be for us also an incentive to lead other people to faith in Christ, which is why we encourage you to invite other people to come to a Christmas service where they can hear about Christ Now, the Christmas carol we're going to sing this morning, Angels We Have Heard on High, uh, we're going to actually sing this one for you. The other two weeks we sang it together, but this one is kind of a special arrangement of this particular song. Uh, Angels We Have Heard on High obviously was based exactly on the scripture we just looked at in Luke chapter 2 about the angels singing. Uh, the earliest printed version of this song was in 1842 and it was found in a French song book, which I don't know what it is about the French, but all these carols came from there. So something happened over there and, and nobody knows who wrote it. No one knows who penned the words of this thing. But it originated in 18th century France before it was even published. That there's evidence that it was actually written in the 1700s, and also the song, the melody itself was written back then. Which some of you know this, but um, in the 17 and 1800s, many times when people wanted to, to write a hymn or a song or a carol, uh, they would find a tune that everyone already knew. Sometimes these tunes were even sung in the bars and things. They'd take this familiar tune, and then they'd put these new words to it. They'd transform it, and that's likely what happened here. Uh, The song was translated into English in 1860 by a guy named James Chadwick, who was a bishop. And then the melody of the song is different than the one we sing. In fact, the way we sing the song is almost viewed as a different song. The melody we use is to a tune that's called Gloria, and it was arranged by an American organist by the name of Edward Shippen Barnes. And so that's the version that we sing, but it was based on this old carol from France. Finally, I want to mention that gloria in excelsis Deo" means glory to God in the highest. And so as we're singing those words, that's what it means. Before we sing the song, let me take a minute to thank God for what he's done for us, though, through sending Christ. Heavenly Father, we... We're amazed as we think of the story. We're amazed as we think that you'd send your son in such a humble way to be born under such humble circumstances and what that communicates to us and your your love for us, your concern for us and the, the steps that you would take to bring peace in the world. And we thank you that when we put our trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of eternal life. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church/messages, or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.